This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, March 13, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Today we're going to talk about systems of oppression, and here to walk us through some of the details is Aaron Laramont. Aaron is the mastermind behind the website known as Painted Nails and Blaze Trails. It's basically a blog that explores the challenges of dismantling systems of oppression in rural areas. Aaron describes himself as a non-binary, trans-femme, disabled, white, and Latinx organizer that lives in rural southeast Missouri. Aaron uses this blog as a way to share his revelations and struggles with fellow organizers and activists that are committed to dismantling the systems of oppression in rural areas. Now, I personally became acquainted with Aaron while on Twitter. There were more than a few tweets that caught my attention, including one that I found particularly interesting because it resonated with some of the research I'd been doing on the topic of wokeism. And the tweet read, and I quote, I keep seeing this pattern of proclaimed leftists, even organizers, wanting to cancel oppressed people for the wrong politics while ignoring their condition, unquote. This notion of canceling things that the left doesn't agree with seems to fit into a disturbing pattern of people who initially want, or at least proclaim anyways, want to do good, but end up doing little more than virtue signaling. So my personal journey into the ways in which racism and bigotry affects our society has shown me that there is a definite and not-so-subtle form of racism emanating from the extreme elements of the political left in this country, and by contrast, we often hear of overt and perhaps even shameless racism that exists on the extreme right. For over the past five years, it's been unleashed in many ways, and it's driven our society into a deep well of self-reflection. But surprise, you know, racism is alive and well on the other end of the extreme spectrum as well. It takes on a different form, including virtue signaling, uh, cancel culture, and, and an overall form of racism that tries to not look like racism. And the unfortunate end result is that there is a system of oppression that continues to thrive in our society. So, Aaron, thank you for joining us on the program, and I look forward to you giving us some perspective from the front lines, and I hope my introduction wasn't too far off the mark. (laughs) No, I think it was pretty good. Oh, good. So I tried to lay out a scenario in that introduction for a listening audience, and and I'm I'm sure I didn't get it completely right. But, you know, before we dive into the details, can you give us some background on yourself and what motivates you toward activism? Sure. So um, I grew up in in rural Missouri, of course, uh, down in Malden, Missouri. I'm from uh, the Boot Hill. Um, spent, you know, the first 18 to 20 years um, living there of my life um, and saw, I mean, saw a lot of poverty um, in my own family and in the people around me. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, I grew up with a family that had a history of, of field work, migrant work um, on my mom's side and uh, factory work on my dad's side. And, and but also my mom had done some factory work as well. Um, and so we grew up very poor and working class. Um, 
and I got to hear all the stories about, you know, how my family grew up and, and the things they did and the sacrifices they made. And, um, and those stories really stuck with me. They really um, cemented in, into me who I was. Uh, it was something that really couldn't be removed, um, especially as I got older and saw uh, disparities between even myself and other people in the community. Um, like growing up poor, not having enough money on, you know, certain trips um, during school and like, um, and that wasn't a reflection on my parents. Like, you know, they worked very hard um, and, and took every opportunity they could, um, did everything they could to take care of us and provide for us and did a wonderful job. Mm-hmm. Um, but despite all of that, you know, we're, we're told we, if you work hard, you can make it. If you work hard, um, uh, we're given this idea of what the American dream is. So and as I got older, I found out that that's, those things are lies. They're not true, um, that not everybody can make it. Um, and I saw that from, you know, childhood to now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, and I actually reject the term activist. Um, I actually am an organizer okay. um, because I, I think as activism is like we're acting alone. Um, and, and as an organizer, what really, what really propelled me into wanting to organize um, was recognizing that we were powerless to change the conditions around us mm-hmm. um, in that. And because we were divided, um, because d- things like drugs, things like class, things like race um, kept us divided from realizing what we could do if we had a collective community um, that could demand better. Mm-hmm. And and so and we're going to get into this in a little while here, because or very shortly, I should say that you're you're you're. Uh, um, theory of, of, of oppression, systems of oppression. and But before we get started on that, I'd really like to find out you have a website called Painted Nails and Blaze Trails. Where did that name come from? What's the story behind it? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I used to have a, a blog called The Hellion because um, I used to be a little chaos creator, especially in my 20s. Um, and even in, you know, even into my early 30s now, but a little bit. But mm-hmm. um, as a non-binary person, like, I, I like to do my nails. Um, so that's where the painted nails comes from. But mm-hmm. also the blaze trails um, is a little bit more like of a few different reasons. Um, it, it could represent maybe, you know, the bridges that I've burned in the past that some of them that I regret. Mm-hmm. Um, it could also mean um, that we're blazing a new trail um, forward, something that's not really been done before. But even as I'm uncovering like our history in Missouri, it actually has been. Um, so I think it's a few different things and it's kind of an evolving theme. Um, and yeah, I'm not really sure. I just kind of have left it there for now and it may even change in the future. So, well, it's a pretty easy one to remember for me anyways. I'm like, you know, looking up your website and like, oh yeah, painted nails. I just type in painted and it comes right up for me. So it works (laughs) out well. Uh, so you talk a lot about oppression and so, I want to see in your blog, and we'll get into some of your blog articles shortly, but in your experience, is oppression necessarily driven on a systemic level in this country, or is it more cultural, or is it something else altogether? Um, So the way that I see oppression, at least in the time that we're living in, um, because I think that oppression takes different forms, right, like depending on the context that we're in. Mm -hmm. But I think that um, in our time period and the time that we've been given, Um, I think it's taking the form of racial capitalism. So um, taking the form of a system that exploits our labor, um, that it has, you know, stolen land, stolen bodies, 
Um, so to me, oppression is on a systemic level and, and has been since at least the birth of, birth of the country, if not before. And you actually go into that a little bit in your blog. In fact, let's talk about that. You have one blog that caught my attention early on is called Capitalism is Racism. And in this blog, you go into the history of how capitalism emerged and and grew in our it grew in our nation uh, by building on the backs of of the BIPOC community, that's BIPOC, which stands for Black Indigenous People of Color. And can you expand on that argument a little bit? And I'll have some follow up questions for you afterwards. Sure. And yeah, and like yeah, I know in the blog post I, I listed as BIPOC, I would actually go back and correct that and say that yeah, like Black and Brown communities, right, and our immigrant communities, mm-hmm. our Native communities. So because um, I don't want to like you know group everyone into one i recognize that those communities are very different um but yeah i think so what i meant by that is that um since the formation of capitalism it go you know dates all the way back to to the old catholic church um and you know the time of the reformation all these things um you know since its emergence it was always something that had been grounded in um racism you saw it in the way um, that the Catholic Church talked about purity um, with white people and how in order to be um, redeemed or, or to have redemption, like you had to be whiter um, and those that weren't whiter, you know, it became very racialized then. And then we also saw that play out with slavery and the slave trade um, and how black and brown and indigenous communities, um, their labor was stolen and and not just stolen, but they were forced into labor um, to build this country. And so who, and of course, naturally it's rich white men that benefited from that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that racism is solidified in capitalism and that it's not something that is um, not something that's interwoven, not something that's interlocked, but it is baked in and there, and it cannot be like taken out. based on the history and based on the foundation it was built on. Well, I'm going to uh, let me challenge you a little bit on that one, because it gets you to reconsider whether or not whether or not it's fair to call capitalism racist, because perhaps we should call it classism. And, and to play devil's advocate here, let's assume there is no more racism at all anywhere in the world. No more racism. Capitalism would still survive, though, wouldn't it? I think that um, I actually believe that capitalism is both a racist and classist system. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually believe that to understand what oppression is in this time frame, we have to look at it through a lens of uh, of, of race and class. Um, so, but, so yes, capitalism is classism, one hundred percent, and I think it's also one hundred percent racism. Um, I think that we often can like separate these issues and it actually does us an injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that uh, capitalism informs, um, like you mentioned, is it is it cultural? Is it something else? I actually think that the system informs the interpersonal and it informs other systems around it. It's like poisoning the water. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, so I actually don't believe that racism can be dismantled unless capitalism is also dismantled, which is, which goes back to my previous statement of like racism and capitalism are the like same system. Hmm. So I'm going to kick off a slightly different aspect to this discussion because, um, you know, just looking around at your blog a little bit more, you wrote another blog, which was called Exploring Solidarity, Not Charity with Rural and Poor Communities. And I, I think that the tack, if I'm not mistaken, the tack you're taking in this blog is that you describe how um, oppression works through charities, 
And I just want to quote this to you, a, a part of your article, which I thought was, was, which hit me pretty hard. And it's a bit of a long quote, so bear with me here. It says, quote, I've been part of many calls and meetings where I've heard criticism from well-meaning affluent white people from the city that have much advice for us and how we should organize, but do little more than jabber. I've also watched affluent white individuals from rural Missouri enable that behavior as a way to boost their own individual status within a group. Now, this reinforces the apparatus of racial capitalism within our rural communities through individuals acting on our behalf, yet freely giving away our chance to speak truth to power, ultimately giving away our power. While I'm certainly bothered by these instances, the reason I bring it to the forefront is to address the pity and charity mindset that racial capitalism has cornered us into, unquote. And the very last, the very last statement there that, that racial capitalism has cornered us into really struck me. And, and so anyways, you go on to talk about the role that charity plays in its part in the perpetuation of racial capitalism. So can you explain a little bit more what, what you're talking about in that blog? Sure. So, um, yeah, and like there, there's the individualism portion, of course. And I just want to say that, like, I think all of us in some sense are guilty of it, right? Like no one person is responsible mm-hmm. um, for this happening. Um, I think that many of us fall into the same trap. I'm certainly guilty of it. Um, when especially the part where we talk about, um, you know, basically tokenizing ourselves, right? Like, Mm -hmm. if it's like, hey, we may get a little bit like more attention, we might get a little bit more pay, if we really leverage, um, like our condition Mm -hmm. as like, as almost a way of striking pity, right? Um, So the way the way that I look at charity, um, and I want to be clear, I don't think that like direct service organizations are a bad thing. Um, I actually think that there's a need, right? Like in the society, if we were to pull out all of the homeless shelters in Missouri, Mm -hmm. like that would be a complete catastrophe, right? Right. Um, So, and like, that's not something that I want to see, but what I'm saying is that it's not a band, it's a band-aid, right? Like there's a bigger system at play that's informing why this is happening in our communities. Mm -hmm. And so direct service organizations don't get to the core root of the problem. Um, I think they're very important, especially for the, for the time that we're living in, because I know in Southeast Missouri, we have several, and they do very important work. Um, and, and they do protect a lot of people, um, even from death um, in, in our communities, like during the winter. Um, but it's also not getting to the root cause of like why it's happening. Um, and often cases, sometimes what I see are organizations actually defending the system of racial capitalism as a good thing. Um, and and in reality, it's actually harming our, our, our like, it's harming our communities. Like they're distant, you know, there's no investment mm-hmm. um, in, in community programs and our healthcare and our housing. Um, so like defending the system that is putting people on the street is, in my opinion, not the way um, to fix the problem or not to get to the root of the problem. Mm-hmm. And so in the same article, you then you you you're an organizer and uh, I used the word activist earlier, but uh, I think it's uh, in your case, it's definitely more appropriate to say organizer. But you, in this article, you talk about the the role of solidarity. I guess I, what I wasn't seeing in this article, maybe it's, it's in our, other articles that you've written. What does solidarity look like to you? Yeah, that's actually a really good question, because I thought about it after I wrote it. Um, and I thought I didn't really put in right, like what it should look like. Um, and I think that there are people and, and bless her soul, Bell Hooks, um, I think taught us a lot about what solidarity looks like. Um, and it's really about a love language um, for the people, right? Like it's not, um, it's not 
fake promises that we're going to do something and then we don't do it. Um, you know, it's not charity, which, you know, is like, I'm going to like give you this thing, this immediate thing here and now, but I'm, I'm not actually going to take action to like solve, like help uh, rectify your condition or lift you up in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, solidarity is like an ongoing commitment um, to justice with that community that you're in solidarity with. Um, and solidarity also recognizes that you have a self-interest in um, your neighbors um, in, in liberating your neighbor from their oppression. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that most of us view oppression as like something that only affects the poorest in our communities, when in reality, we are all oppressed in this society. Um, unless you're one of the very few, you know, ultra rich people that are mm-hmm. running it. Like, um, so I, I think that for anyone who's curious about what solidarity really looks like, you know, turning to like Bell Hooks work, um, Adrian Marie Brown has some really wonderful works as well. Um, and there's a list of resources on my blog where you, where folks can go to. I try to make sure to give credit to organizations um, and, and authors and poets and, and activists, honestly, mm-hmm. organizers um, okay. that I've learned from because um, this didn't come all from me. You know, people had to teach me because I didn't know any of this, you know, as, mm-hmm. as a young organizer. Okay. And so what is the, if you, in your ideal world, what would be the political or social change that you would bring about in our society? In other words, where do you see, if things go the way that you think they ought to go, where do you see our society, say, 20 years from now? Yeah, I think if um, if our communities can, if we continue building relationships with each other, um, like we have been doing, which I think is the basis for all organizing, um, deep, like honest, vulnerable relationships with each other and, and just trusting each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if, you know, and we're bringing our full selves into this world and, and we're naming when we have issues and we're speaking up, I think that, um, I think that we could have a very different world that, you know, that includes things like better housing mm-hmm. um, for, for, for our people, um, more unhoused folks or more housed folks that were previously unhoused. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I could see us achieving like a universal healthcare kind of, you know, how, whatever it looks like, I'm not yeah. tied to whether it's Medicare, you know, but, but I am, I'm very clear that all of our people need insurance, right? We all deserve healthcare. Um, and I think it also looks like an investment in rural areas where our infrastructure is crumbling. Um, so, which also includes housing, it includes food. Um, I think it looks like um, a better care for the environment around us and letting um, our indigenous brothers, sisters, siblings um, lead that charge and, and teach us what we've um, lost. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> then I wanted to sort of get into some specific examples of of oppression, and I was looking for that in your website, and I finally found it. You wrote about Sykeston, uh, Sykeston, Missouri, which um, and your experiences in Sykeston. And for those who are not familiar with the geography, Sykeston is in an area that's closely bordered by Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Arkansas is not too far away either. To me, from the demographic perspective, it's a good uh, good slice of the Midwest as well as a bit of the South, and as such, is perhaps you know somewhat indicative of the demographics between. Demographics of the separation between the haves and the have-nots. So in the blog, you explore this a little bit. You you write about uh, poor blacks living in Section 8 housing under the close watch of a harassing police force while working at these low-wage jobs and just trying to make ends meet. And at the same time, you know, as you drive down I-55, you know, right through Sykeston, 
and I-55 cuts the nation in half, you know, from Chicago down to, to, uh, to Louisiana, to uh, New Orleans. As you drive along I-55 through Sykeston, you wouldn't see that, right? You would see hotels, you see businesses, you don't see what's really going on behind those hotels and businesses. And so, you know, it's an old story. Oppression is self-perpetuating so long as the oppressors, for the most part, are ignorant and somewhat unempathetic to the real price of oppression. And on the other hand, and you, you talked about your parents this way, that the oppressed are often led to believe that all they have to do is put in some sustained hard work to bring about success. But as you've seen in your life and you described earlier, that situation simply doesn't change. So can you go into how Sykeston, Sykeston, Missouri, is a metaphor for what's wrong with our nation and, and capitalism in particular? Yeah, I think there there's a vice, excuse me, false ideology, um, right? That through hard work and um, perseverance, that you can achieve anything you want in the society. Some people that can that may be true, um, mm-hmm. and, and it is true for some people. Um, but I also think that it's not true for a lot of people. And we see, and, and this goes back a little bit earlier to the previous blog post about individualism and um, how some people get lifted up by our community um, while the rest of the community gets left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and yeah, I think Sykeson is a good example um, of how oppression plays out in our communities because you have one side of the town where the housing's extremely dilapidated People are very aware of their condition um, and uh, there's some over-policing uh, mm-hmm. of, of their communities. Um, and it's specifically because it, it's black and brown people that live on that side of town and it's poor white people that also live on that side of town. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been looking at moving to Sykeston um, as a possibility. And so I've done a lot of research. I've talked to a lot of people. Um, and so like, I'm very aware of what it looks like there. And then on the other side, um, you have a lot, you know, you have a lot of nicer houses, um, mm-hmm. literally divided by um, Highway 61, I think, is, is the highway that runs north. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, on the west side, you have dilapidated housing. On the right side, you have new housing projects that are going up mm-hmm. um, that are predominantly mostly white people that live on that side of town. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that disparity is very, I mean, quite frankly, a little on the nose, but black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it also, I think it is an opportunity to look at things through the class lens too, because it's not just black and brown people, um, poor black and brown people that live on the West side. Um, it's also poor white people. Yeah. Um, and obviously there, there's some nuance in that. There are probably some families that are not poor, you know, that live on the West side, sure. of course. Um, but I, I think Sykeson's a really good example. I think we also see it here in Cape Girardeau. Mm-hmm. Um, where I currently live, like we see on the south side, um, how there's food deserts, there's no opportunity, we don't have public transportation. Um, and then you have the north side, which the very north side, which has gated communities, um, very nice homes that are mm-hmm. mostly white people, you know, owned by wealthy white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see whose roads get prioritized and fixed first, if, yeah. if ours even get fixed at all. So um, I think this plays out in a lot of communities around the country. I don't think it's isolated to Sykeston or the Boot Hill or Southeast Missouri. 
Um, I think there are a lot of rural areas that are, are dealing with very similar issues. Um, and even the cities, I think that the cities are also seeing this with like redlining. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's surprising to a lot of people in the city that say, Hey, people in the rural areas feel this too. You know, it's, it's really a, it's a nationwide uh, issue. Absolutely. And, and I think that's even more of a reason um, for people to understand that we're stronger together mm-hmm. um, when we come together on these issues and address them. Um, but we also have to make sure that when we do address these issues together, um, that we're addressing it for everyone, right? That we're mm-hmm. not leaving a, a certain uh, demographic or, or race or whatever behind. Yeah. So here's a question about capitalism. And there's this sort of knee-jerk reaction by many folks that say, well, if it isn't capitalism, then it's socialism. And so anyone such as yourself, you know, who, who uh, you get painted with this broad brush of socialism. Yet we know that here in the, in the United States, there are a number of institutions that anybody could call socialist, right? When we have, we have roads, bridges, highways that are built for the people. Our air traffic control system is government run. It keeps the planes from flying into each other. Uh, our police, firefighters, even our military serve the common good and throw in our public schools along with that as well. So that's not to mention safety nets like social security, food stamps, unemployment insurance, workman's comp, and so on. And then you get into government institutions that protect the public from being fleeced, you know, like banking regulations or the Consumer Protection Bureau, uh, antitrust laws, and so on. So, I mean, in many ways, you could look at our society today, which is we all call a capitalist society, and you could say, well, it's kind of socialist in a way. So just bottom line, though, is what do you tell people when they accuse you of being anti-capitalist and therefore pro-socialist? Yeah, I mean, I think socialist is just a scare word, to be honest. Mm. Um, I I think that it's a barrier that gets thrown up. There's a narrative around it. Um, I would even argue that, like, sure, maybe there's things that are socialist that I'm on board with. Um, but the way that I look at it is that really what it comes down to for me is I just want to see our communities thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want our communities, I mean, and it sound people make it out like it's so high in the sky, but I do want our communities to thrive and be able to live together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I want to see, um, you know, I want to see an investment in our communities. And I don't think um, if that's socialist, I'm a socialist, right? Like if, if everyone being housed makes me a socialist, then, then so be it, I'm a socialist. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that everyone deserves housing. I think that everyone deserves healthcare. And what capitalism does is convinces us that we have to compete for those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and in reality, we don't. There's enough to go around. Um, and, and, you know, so if people are, are worried about socialism, um, I, I look like actually like read it um, from a reliable source mm-hmm. and maybe it's not even socialism, but maybe it's something else. I, uh, so, right. um, yeah. I know that like when I first talk to people about what we want out of our community, I don't tell people I'm a socialist. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. not what I tell people, well, it, um, you know, yeah. but I do ask them what their vision for their community is. Mm-hmm. Well, I can see that you don't want to, you don't want to outright tell them you're socialist because then they paint you with that brush and then they won't listen to you anymore. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the economics of oppression, because this is where it comes down to the wire. This is where it comes down to our paychecks. Now, you live in southeastern Missouri, which is a fairly rural part of the Midwest. And your congressional district, which is the Missouri 8th District, is the lowest in the state in terms of the percentage of people living near or below the poverty, the poverty level. And in fact, your district, the Missouri 8th, ranks 
number 40 in all 435 congressional seats across the entire nation, which puts your your uh, congressional district in the lowest 10 percent. And I bring this up because it's it's been my observation that the politics of capitalism, not capitalism by itself, but the politics of capitalism addresses economically depressed citizens by distracting them with an endless supply of, of boogeymen to blame for their financial woes, particularly by inventing an us and them mentality, as in, gee, we would be doing better if it wasn't for the invasion of them. And the them could be any group of people, right? You know, blacks, Latinos, gays, illegal Mexicans pouring over the border. I mean, you name it. By that reasoning, then, it would seem that increasing economic opportunities and educational opportunities would help eliminate this cycle of oppression. And yet the political powers that be, and I'm putting both parties into this box, by the way, don't seem to be so interested in doing this. Uh, To the Democrats, they call it flyover country. Uh, To the Republicans, well, like I said before, they distract you with God, guns, and patriotism. I'm not sure if this attitude resonates with you, but in in your organizing efforts, do you focus on fighting the fundamental attitude of oppression by raising the level of the economy and the education? Yeah, I mean, um, I think, yeah, for the for the people who think that it's a flyover, um, right, like territory or whatever the wording was there, um, you know, that's that's often what I hear until they need something from us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, people remember that when you come knock on their door and want their vote. Mm-hmm. Um, people, people down here are not stupid. Um, we're not idiots. We know, um, we're very aware of our condition. Um, I think that we're so aware that we find ways to distract ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, as far, yeah, I think as far as like, I, I hear what you're saying with politics of, uh, of capitalism. I would say that a lot of it is just pol- part of capitalism in my opinion, but mm-hmm. Um, to play these political games with people's lives really is what it is. Um, I do think that there is, I think that economic growth, um, the way that we view it under the system, I I think is in the interest always of the rich. Um, Mm -hmm. It's always about what wealth can we extract from this, you know, community. Um, And so right now it's, you know, really hard backbreaking labor. Like we have a steel mill that went in at New Madrid or Marston, um, we have, you know, a nail uh, place in Poplar Bluff. There's, there's a factory in Portageville that my mom and dad worked at. Um, so I, I don't think that when I think of the economy, that's not what I think of when I think of establishing an economy that works for the people. Um, when I think of an economy that works for the people, I think of a more local economy that is self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. Um, one where we can grow our own food and, and you know, have our own food in our own region mm-hmm. and supply ourselves. Um, but we also need the resources to do that. So I think that it's an investment. Um, so in a way, yes, I do think that we have to build an economy here that works more for our people and less for big institutions and corporations mm-hmm. um, and Wall Street, quite frankly. Um, I also think that, yes, we do have to build in education and we have to rethink how we do education Um, because the way education is especially done here right now is that students are treated as receptacles that are supposed to be filled by the teacher Mm -hmm. instead of the teacher being a facilitator um, that places, you know, an observation in the center and then we reflect on it. Mm -hmm. Um, So we don't ever actually get real education about our lives, our history, um, we're, you know, we're shoved, you know, instead U.S. imperialism 
um, you know, and quite frankly, a narrative that's been set by U.S. the United States um, against, you know, poor working class communities, black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, it, I think, I, yes, it's both. Um, and I think it's maybe even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've, um, I, I mean, I personally see this, and I'm, I'm sure you would agree that these recent attacks on, uh, particularly from the extreme right, uh, on our education system as a sort of backlash against toppling the power centers that oppression so fortifies. In other words, I think, like you say, it, children are filled with uh, not the real history, but the history that we would prefer them, we being the oppressors, I suppose, would prefer them to understand rather than what actually, which actually enriches their knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there is some backlash for sure. Um, I mean, I don't think it's coincidence that Obama was in office. And I think a black man, of course, in the presidency probably agitated a lot, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, There's also some, I held some critiques at the same time with Obama. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think it's backlash. And I also think it's always probably been part of their agenda. Um, I think that, you know, the right wants everything privatized. They want, um, because for them, privatization is good, right? Like for us, it's not great um, because that means they can hoard their resources. Um, But I think that this has always probably been part of their agenda. And what we're seeing is there was an opportunity for them to really move forward their agenda because they're they're very bold about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's where we're a little weak on the left is that we don't take the opportunities when we can actually further our agenda and sometimes we squander it. Yeah. Um, so I think that part of part of what it's going to take is for us to get more strategic um, to fight against these um, types of like campaigns. Mm-hmm. We often get stuck specifically in the legislature and I think it's time we broaden our horizons and, and really think about other ways that we can build power and influence the world around us. Okay. Well, we're just about to wrap this thing up. And uh, in fact, I'm going to ask you, well, why don't I ask you right now, uh, what can our interested listeners do to understand more about oppression, especially in our rural areas? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say there's there's lots of, of organizations, um, first and foremost, uh, that, that do a lot of work in rural areas um, and that do a lot of work in the South. I think the South can teach us a lot as much as people you know drag the south i actually really like the south personally mm-hmm. um i you know the boot hill feels very much like the south you know and there's community to be found in the south despite um some of the horrible things that have happened mm-hmm. um so i would say there's some wonderful organizations um like down home north carolina um there's these, I don't think they're exactly rural, um, but I know that like the Miami workers um, in, in Miami, Florida, they're a really good um, organization. Um, there's Kentucky Tenants that's doing some wonderful rural work. Um, so there's a lot of different organizations. Um, and I think showing up for racial justice, that would be um, one that I would definitely recommend folks check out. Um, mm-hmm. But if you can do a Google search for any of those types of organizations and, and you'll find lots of resources by them. Okay. And your website also lists many of these resources. Uh, you have a whole page of them here and your website is painted nails and blazed trails, all one word painted nails and blazed trails.com. Uh, just go to the uh, resources part of that uh, website and you'll see all these resources that we're talking about. Uh, one last thing I want to ask you though, is you've chosen to become a fairly progressive person within a fairly conservative area. 
uh, the proverbial or red dot and a uh, or proverbial blue dot and a sea of red. Why not move to an area where you aren't uh, such uh, so outnumbered by that? Why uh, why do you stay there? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think that for well, for me, I don't really identify as a blue dot. I'm sorry. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't consider myself like maybe five years ago, I'd be a lot more political. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually view myself more, you know, I am part of my community. Um, and sure, it's run over by red, right. But I'm also very aware that like, there's some political games in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, I found a really nice home here in Cape Girardeau. Like I, I've, you know, we do have a community here of really wonderful people, mm-hmm. um, and people that have, um, shown me immense grace and patience, um, and, and really invested in me. Um, so I'm really grateful for that. And I think that all of us could learn, um, mm-hmm. from that. And I also believe in the potential of this area. Uh, I mean, in the time that I've lived in, you know, from the boot hill to Cape, it's a very different world in Cape Girardeau. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I'm noticing is that things are changing. Um, People are starting to feel a sense of responsibility for their community, which is wonderful. Um, And and the question is being called of, can things change right now? And I think this is, when I mentioned those opportunities that we can really take, I think this is one of them. Um, So I, in addition to just honestly a real I do love my community a deep love for this community mm-hmm. um, I think that it's also my role um, and my responsibility to help move this um, to help create that change mm-hmm. um, just like it is every single other person's responsibility in this community if they want to see it happen okay and and I don't think that we achieve that by running away from our problems I think we achieve it by um standing our ground and, and, you know, looking um, head on and addressing it and not, not running away from it, not conceding ground um, and really taking a a good long look inside of ourselves um, about what it's going to take to change. Okay. Well, that's a really good answer. And I didn't really want to make it political either by, by referring to the blue dot and the sea of red, but uh, that's more of a metaphor for for me. Yeah. Yeah, We say it all the time too. So it's no worries. Okay. Okay, and I like the idea that, you know, it, 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 I like your answer there where you said, you know, your, your job, this is kind of your calling, really, and, and it's not your your place to run away. It's your it's the community that you love, the community that, that, the community that you've devoted yourself to is is important, and that's, uh, that's where the work is to be done, so very good. Yeah, I think it was um, Gandalf the Grey, or maybe it was Gandalf the White from Lord of the Rings, <laughs> that said, uh, it's not for us to decide... Um, what time we've been given, but to decide what to do with the time that we've been given. Very well put. Thank you. We've been talking with Aaron Larima, the mastermind behind the website known as Painted Nails and Blaze Trails. It is, in my opinion, a profound blog that explores the challenges of dismantling systems of oppression, particularly in rural areas. Aaron, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Oh, for sure. It's my pleasure. This was wonderful. And and thanks um, thanks for having me on the show. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. 
just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our website page at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week. <laughs>